after the death of Moses, a servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the River Jordan into the land I'm about to give to them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, and all the Hittite country to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Be strong and courageous. Be careful to obey the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn it, uh, do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. So Joshua ordered the officers of the people, go through the camp and tell the people, get your provisions ready. Three days from now you will cross the Jordan here to go in and take possession of the land your Lord your God is giving you for your own. But of the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the command that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you after he said, The Lord your God will give you rest by giving you this land. Your wives, your children, and your livestock may stay in the land that Moses gave you east of the Jordan, but all your fighting men, ready for battle, must cross over ahead of your fellow Israelites. You are to help them unless the Lord, until the Lord gives them rest, as he has done for you, and until they too have taken possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. After that, you may go back and occupy your own land, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you, east of the Jordan, towards the sunrise. Then they answered Joshua, whatever you have commanded us, we will do, and wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we fully obeyed Moses, so we will obey now obey you. Only may the Lord, your God, be with us, with you, as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your word and does not obey it, whatever you may command them, will be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. Again in Joshua, now turning to chapter 21, verse 43. So, the Lord gave Israel all the land he had sworn to give their ancestors, and they took possession of it and settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their ancestors. Not one of their enemies withstood them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their lands. Not one of all of the Lord's good promises to Israel failed 
everyone was fulfilled. Now we turn to the New Testament, and of course this is thousands, thousand, three hundred years later. And uh, after the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul wrote Ephesians chapter 6 from verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armour of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me, writes Paul, that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I may fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When you become a Christian, that is, you turn to the risen Lord Jesus Christ to trust him and live for him, you get not only the four biographies written about Jesus, the Gospels, and the collection of letters written to the earliest Christian communities, the epistles, but you also get a great sprawling collection of all kinds of other ancient writings. The rest of the Bible, the Old Testament. It can be quite daunting. The purpose of this nine-part series of sermons is to help us make some sense of it all. We're not going to examine every single book, but we'll focus on nine key stopping points of the basic grand story that the Bible tells, God's mega-story. We hope this series helps you in reading and understanding Scripture as well as benefiting from the truths of each of the stops themselves. Today, we're at stop four. Stop four is where we meet some of the most difficult things about the Bible. That's not a reason to ignore it or move on quickly to some of the more easier and more edifying parts. It's part of the reason we should stop here. Stop four is... Joshua. We go back to about 1200 years BC to the late Bronze Age, a time of unprecedented turmoil and change in the ancient Near East. We meet this man Joshua who leads the people of Israel in violently conquering the land of Canaan 
and then settling them there. This man is described in the sixth book of the Old Testament, named after the man himself, simply called Joshua. Here's what happens in Joshua. There are three parts. The first part describes the Israelites' violent conquest of the land of Canaan. From the east, they come across the Jordan and destroy Jericho and other cities. Chapters 1 to 8. Then there is the campaign of conquest in the south. Chapters 10, 9 to 10. Then there's a campaign of conquest in the north. Chapter 11. And then in the second part of the three parts of the book of Joshua, the land is allocated among the Israelite tribes. Chapters 12 through 22. In the third part, Joshua leads the Israelites in a solemn act of recommitment to serve only the Lord and to be his people. Chapters 23 and 24. How important is Joshua in the biblical story? Very. It's an important conclusion to what has gone before. Remember our first stop, creation, Genesis 1? We heard how God orders the cosmos in six days and then rests on the seventh. That doesn't mean he put his feet up. In the ancient Near East culture, a god rested not on a bed, but on a throne in a temple. The first stop pictures God as resting and reigning in his cosmos, which is his temple filled with his presence. By the time we get to our second stop, however, that's Genesis 12 and following, something is wrong. Humans are scattered across the earth and they've lost the presence of God and they're living under a curse. Sin has entered. In the second stop, God calls one man, Abraham, and promises him that through him all the families of the earth would be blessed. This is the beginning of God's move to reclaim his recalcitrant world. To be frank, it's hard to underestimate the significance of the promise of Abraham to the whole biblical story. It's like a great engine that drives the rest of what follows. So much so that St. Paul can even say that the promise to Abraham, all the nations we bless through you, was the gospel announced in advance to him. That's Galatians chapter 3 and verse 8. In the third stop last week, that promise to Abraham begins to unfold. The Lord rescues the Israelites from Egypt. Israelites, Abraham's descendants, but now a nation. And brings them to himself that he might be their God 
and they might be his people. Through Moses, the Lord makes a pact or covenant with the Israelites, instructing them how they're to live as his people, that he might dwell in their midst. And now, our fourth stop, Joshua. That journey becomes to an end. Israel is planted in the land the Lord promised to Abraham. Joshua chapter 21, verses 43 to 45, says it all. Listen to it carefully. The whole 24 chapters of Joshua in three verses. This is in the order of service, by the way. I quote, So the Lord gave Israel all the land he'd sworn to give their ancestors, and they took possession of it and settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he'd sworn to their ancestors. Not one of their enemies withstood them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hands. Not one of all the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Everyone was fulfilled. Quite a moment. The land, the rest, victory, every one of God's promises fulfilled. You might say, well, if all the Lord's promises are fulfilled, why doesn't the Bible stop at the end of Joshua? We'll come back to that in a moment. Now, I've got two questions, two big questions to put to the book of Joshua. The first one is not easy to answer. I said earlier that stop four is where we meet some of the most difficult things about the Bible. The most difficult thing about the book of Joshua is clear. It's the violent war of destruction against the Canaanites. The violent war of destruction against the Canaanites. What are we to make of that destruction and killing? It seems so, so out of place in our Christian Bible. That's my first question. And if you read Joshua, it will be your question also. Let me start with two answers that don't work. First, someone might say, look, there are a lot of terrible things described in the Bible, massacres, robbery, rape, you name it. But that's not because God approves of such things. It's rather part of the realistic description of sinful behaviour, of sinful humanity. Isn't the war of destruction against the Canaanites just another example of this? That won't work. Unlike those other descriptions of sinful human behaviours, the war of destruction against the Canaanites is explicitly commanded by the Lord. And not only that, the Lord fights for Israel and enables them to overthrow their enemies and take possession of the land. We heard that in Joshua 21 verse 43. So the Lord gave Israel all the land he had sworn to their ancestors. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hands. So that's no answer. Second, what about this? <clears throat> Why don't we say, that's the God of the Old Testament. We worship the God of the New Testament. 
who is completely different. Now that suggestion has a very long pedigree. In the early church around the year 144, a man called Marcion, the son of a bishop, by the way, troubled by such issues, proposed that there are in effect two gods. The lower god of the Old Testament, who made the material universe and was Israel's tribal god, and the higher spiritual God, the heavenly father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Two gods. Marcion even produced his own version of the scriptures with no Old Testament, only parts of the Gospel of Luke and most of Paul's letters. He had one good effect, I'll give him that. This spurred the early church to get their act together in delineating what writing they actually did recognise as Holy Scripture. And there are many Marcionites in the world today still. But this is no answer in any of its forms, ancient or modern. The New Testament, the Apostles and our Lord Jesus Christ himself, are united in affirming that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is the Lord God of the Old Testament. And that matter how much new has come now that the gospel of Jesus fulfills the Old Testament story, it is still the one story of the one God. So that's no answer either. The book of Joshua itself does give a kind of answer to our question. Two themes are described and continually repeated concerning the violent dispossession of the Canaanites. One, the Lord is both able and willing to carry out the covenant promises he made to the ancestors of Israel. And two, if the Canaanites' nations are allowed to remain, the Israelite nation will be unable to survive under the covenant. Does that help? Perhaps it's better if we step back a moment and ask a bigger question about why all this kind of stuff is in the biblical story in the first place. I mean armies and conquests and land and national identity and all that goes with it. Perhaps it's best if we step back a minute and ask a bigger question of why this kind of stuff is in the biblical story in the first place. I mean armies and conquests and land and national identity and all that goes with it. Let me put the question like this. I have here Church New International Version of the Bible and I've opened it to page 782. Now, you'll notice that Malachi and all the rest is on my left and Matthew and the rest on my right. Now, here's my question. Why all this before this? I mean, this is, what, three times bigger than this. Why all this before the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? And why has it got to take all that time dealing with Abraham and the patriarchs and promising the land of Canaan, 
rescuing Israel, bringing him into the land, which is today's stop. And then as our future stops will show, speaking to them by prophets, giving them kings, judging them and restoring Israel and so forth. This first and bigger part of the Bible story covers millennia. Why is it there? And all the physical level of land, armies, nations and killing with it. Now my question is not Marcion's question, which was, why was the Old Testament God really God? My question is, why does the true and living God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, go to all the trouble? Why not just start with Jesus? He was where it was going all along. Have you ever thought of that question? Well, we may be able to think of a certain number of answers if we try it, I guess. It may be a, may be a fruitful exercise to think about what we'd lose if we didn't, there was no Old Testament. After all, as well as giving us the problems we're noticing, the Old Testament is a profound importance in, for example, understanding the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and the significance of his wonderful gospel. It has so much, so much. But that's actually not the point. See, it's not for us to explain everything as though we were God or even to defend the ways of the Lord. I should tell you that I... I didn't ask the question because I knew the answer. I don't. Sorry about that. My point is that accepting this reality, the way God has chosen, we are forced to accept all that goes with it in, on working on the level of flesh and blood people and physical nations in the real historical context, in the real ancient culture of the ancient Near East, including warfare and violence. Much of what troubles us is a direct consequence of that. As well, we must also accept that God works within the context of cultures of the time. He accommodates himself to it. Even to aspects of those cultures, as with our culture too, by the way, which reflect the hardness of heart of fallen humanity. For example, in his thoughtful treatment of the question of the Canaanites. Chris Wright, who's the Old Testament scholar and director of the Langham Partnership International, where he's taken the role played by the late John Stott, draws our attention to the fact that in ancient Near Eastern culture of the time, the language, if not the re but not necessarily the reality, of wars of total destruction was standard. That's the way they talked about them. It wasn't unique to the Israelites or the book of, the book of Joshua, in other words. Chris Wright wonders if, as with other examples like slavery, polygamy, and such like, <coughs> God might be accommodating himself to the structures of a fallen world, even though even as the very same time he's working to bring his long-term and better purposes to a wonderful fulfilment 
and fruition in Christ. I think that makes a lot of sense. Further, Old Testament scholar John Walton reminds us of the important reality that the Bible is written to a very different culture to our culture. This quote, by the way, I'm about to read is also in the order of service. Walton says, and I quote, The Bible, while it has relevance and significance for us, was not written to us. I'll read that again, it's so important. The Bible, while it has relevance and significance for us, was not written to us. He goes on. It was written in a language that, that most of us did not understand, to a culture very different from ours, and to people who thought very differently from how we do. It is not written to us, says Walton, not in our language or in response to our culture. The message transcends culture, but it is given in, it, but it is given in a form that is fully ensconced in the ancient cultural river of Israel. That last sentence. The message transcends culture, but is given in a form that is fully ensconced in the ancient cultural river of Israel. That's the culture, in other words, of the wider ancient Near East. Now, this is nowhere a complete or impossibly inadequate answer, but I do think it gives one helpful clarification in the mystery of the violence of the Old Testament in general and of Joshua in particular. It's all part of the biggest decision of God to work on this plane of history. And now I have a second question about the book of Joshua. You did notice that Joshua 21.45 says, and I quote, not one of the Lord's good promises to Israel failed, Everyone was fulfilled. Not one of all the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Everyone was fulfilled. My question is this. If that is so, why doesn't the story stop here? It's all achieved. It's a much smaller Bible. Now to answer that, we must go on a brief journey where we'll see that there is more than one moment of God's promises being fulfilled, of his giving rest to his people and so forth. There is a cascade of fulfilments. First, come with me to 1 Kings chapter 8 from verse 54. 1 Kings 8, 54. Solomon, Israel's king, is praying at the dedication of the great temple of the Lord that he, built, that he built in Jerusalem. The Lord is finally dwelling among his people. Here is his resting place forever. Here he will sit enthroned. Solomon prays a long prayer, concluding it in these words. When Solomon had finished all the prayers and supplications of the Lord, he rose before the altar of the Lord, where he'd been kneeling, with his hands spread out towards heaven. He stood and blessed the whole assembly of Israel in a loud voice, saying, Blessed be the Lord, 
who has given rest to his people Israel just as he promised. Not one word has failed of all the good promises he gave to his servant Moses. Here it is again. Another moment of fulfilment. Not one word has failed of all the good promises God gave to his servant Moses. Even though, even though this is what? Hundreds of years later than we just read in Joshua. This gives us the clue that the Lord's promises to Moses and before that to Abraham does not have a simple and singular fulfilment but an ongoing development that drives the biblical story, in fact. Though it does have a climax. The story that included the conquest of Canaan comes with profound and transforming climax in the story of Jesus Christ. All of it, the promises to Abraham, Moses, Joshua, and all that follows, narrows down to one Israelite, one man, Jesus of Nazareth. Another Joshua, as it turns out. For Jesus, Jesus, is simply the Greek form of the Hebrew word for Joshua, Yeshua meaning Yah save, the Lord saves. All the promises of God are yes in him. And that transforms everything. It transforms the inheritance, the land. It's no longer now about a piece of real estate in the Middle East, but an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who are being protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, as St. Peter puts it in his letter. It transforms the nature of God's kingdom no longer a kingdom of this world and therefore no longer violence, warfare to defend or conquer it. This is what Jesus told Pilate at his trial in a most significant statement when Pilate asked Jesus about his kingship. Jesus replied, I quote, this is John 18 verse 36, John 18.36 My kingdom, he said, is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Jesus' kingdom, not of or from this world, unlike Joshua's. Otherwise there would be a need for physical violence, says Jesus. But no. Or we could go to what the Apostle Paul wrote about warfare, Christian warfare. Ephesians 6, verse 11 and 12. Ephesians 6, 11 and 12. 
Put on the full armour of God, he wrote. So you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenlies. Our struggle in Christ is not against flesh and blood, as Joshua's was. Like Joshua, yes, there is still a life and death struggle, but not against Canaanites, something more serious and more dangerous. The spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And so, to take another example, what we're to put to death, as Paul's letter to the Colossians puts it in chapter 3, are not Canaanites, but, and I quote, whatever belongs to our earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire and greed, which is idolatry. That's where the death is to be put to. That's where the killing is to be, to those things. See, all is transformed. We are not to imitate Joshua, but we do, in Christ, struggle still with the same confidence Joshua had. When will this all end? How will it end? When will the fulfilment fully come? Well, without giving too much away and ruining the series, I can say that the last stop, stop nine, is the complete fulfilment of Joshua's conquest. Joshua claimed the land so the Lord might dwell there, live there amongst his people. The last stop in God's mega story will be this. And here I close. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away.